This is South Korea, a highly developed and wealthy economy that epitomizes the story of modern Asian nations that have made the transition from very poor to very rich in less than a human lifetime. The nation is today a glistening beacon of technological innovation that in many fields leads the world in highly productive and profitable industries. The nation is also a great case study that shows that good economic management is far more important than natural resource wealth in determining the success of a nation. By looking at the success of South Korea, which is completely devoid of almost any resources, and then comparing it to the basket case brother to the north, which has been blessed with a cornucopia of natural resources. No, South Korea didn't need any of that. Sure, it didn't get off to a great start as a nation. It wasn't rich, it grew up in a bad neighborhood, and it was always getting into fights. But instead of giving in, it battled its way through the adversity, got educated, and made something of itself. South Korea was officially struck into existence at the end of World War II, after the Korean Peninsula was occupied by Japanese forces. The nation then almost immediately got into another war with its evil stepbrother to the north, who was trying this new communism thing, which made a lot of people angry, so they actually got a lot of help fighting in that war, which was nice. But after all wars said and done, the nation had basically been at war for over a decade, and now it was left with the ominous task of, you know, actually feeding its people. South Korea during this time was poor. Most people don't realize it, but North Korea, a nation we have already explored as being completely useless, was wealthier than South Korea at this time, which actually kind of made sense. Sure, it was a hopeless dictatorship, but it had the direct support of its communist neighbor China and the Soviet Union to the north. It also had coal and oil and better farmlands that helped keep the economy chugging along. South Korea, on the other hand, was almost completely surrounded by political rivals. Its only land connection was with North Korea, which was not great. And sure, it had Japan to the east, which was technically an ally as it was going through its post-war reconstruction, but South Korea and its people hated Japan, which again, following the Japanese occupation just five years ago, was probably fair enough. So all of this was not a great place to start building a nation. It had no wealth, no friends, and not even that much in the way of support. The nation struggled through various governments, military coups, and it was all looking pretty grim. South Korea in the early 1960s looked very similar to any unstable pseudo-democracy in the world today. This all started to turn around, though, in the mid-1960s. The Cold War was at its peak, and the United States was trying really hard to stop the communists all over the globe, and more specifically, here, in Vietnam. Partially for the good publicity it would bring the United States, it was keen to bring as many allies into this war as possible. Now, South Korea was a very, very poor nation, but what it did have was a seething hatred for communists and a conscripted military. So the two nations basically made a deal. South Korea would send its vast supply of military personnel and America would see to it that they got equipped and were brought up to combat capability. Most people don't realize it, but South Korea was actually a major, major player in the Vietnam War and it in total contributed over 300,000 troops to the conflict. In return, America basically said, thanks bro, and threw South Korea some foreign aid. 
Whether this was an official back and forth trade that basically made the Korean Armed Forces a mercenary organization is all in the nuance. But regardless of that, what it meant was that South Korea was now getting the cash flow that it needed to build roads and ports and factories and schools and start transforming itself into the thinking nation. The powers that be in South Korea at this time, primarily South Korean President Park Chung-hee knew that they would not be able to rely on American foreign aid forever, and they also knew that the nation was never going to become prosperous based off luck. It would need to become a proper industrial center to cultivate its own wealth and become a bastion of capitalist industry in the region. It set out to do this by investing a lot of its foreign aid into modernization efforts, but it did it in a really unique way. Sure, it set out ambitious government projects to construct roads and all that, but, but it put a lot of impetus on the Korean people themselves. A program dubbed, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna butcher this, the Seimel Undong, which loosely translated meant the new community movement, focused a lot of attention on rural villages. It aimed to bring these villages out of the era of subsistence farming and create towns and cities that would be able to contribute proactively to the growth of the nation. This basically gave a whole lot of resources to these villages and outlined plans to help them improve themselves in line with the nation's big picture ambitions. On paper, this was to help bridge the gap between these rural areas and the new industrial sectors that were starting to develop across the nation. But a happy little side effect of all of this was that it also increased crop yields by introducing people to modern fertilizers and farming techniques and it also put a heavy emphasis on education. A big part of these care packages were used to construct schools that put a really, really heavy emphasis on vocational training. The only way South Korea was going to get rich is if it could embrace and effectively use modern technology on the level that it could compete in emerging global markets. These same old training centers taught children from young ages up to working age adults things like math, science, but also engineering or farm management and trades, all in one place. The idea was that average students could be trained to become more effective workers and exceptional students could be picked out to work in the nation's larger projects and bring more effective management to the whole nation. And this kind of worked. A well-educated population is one of the primary determinants of a strong economy in the modern world because industry today relies on developing world-leading products and running effective supply chains which all requires a higher level of thinking and a more educated workforce than subsistence farming or even old school industry. Now this emphasis on education is something that has carried through to the modern day. These schools are long gone, but education in South Korea is intense. It's not unusual for students to start rigid academic teachings from two years old and for the intense tutoring to be conducted outside of regular schooling which is already far more intense than middle school in the West. This is because South Korea is heavily influenced by vocations and the competition to get into prestigious fields like law or engineering and medicine is insane. And look, while this may not be great for adolescent mental health, it has been fantastic for the country's modern industries. But anyway, back in the day, the continued investment of the nation into industry and education led to a period of sustained economic growth. It facilitated a healthy market, but more importantly, 
the nation was able to start producing things for an increasingly globalised world. You see, Japan was also doing really, really well around this time, producing high-end electronics and cars and fridges and, and all of that good stuff. But their economy was doing so well that they were starting to get quite expensive, and people were looking for a new supplier of cheaper consumer goods. And South Korea, with its newly developed industrial capacity, was there to fill that gap. It was able to produce things of reasonable quality, but it was still cheaper to produce things here than it was in Japan, and especially cheaper than producing them in America. So it took up the role of the world's low-cost manufacturer for a little while before China decided to unscrew itself and take up the role from South Korea. But, you know, the circle of life. In the meantime, the whole thing was very, very profitable for South Korea, and the government was keen to keep these good times going. The growth of the nation during this time was leading to prosperity for all. Good jobs and good industries were producing good products, meaning that the nation was getting wealthier internally while also expanding onto a global market. And it wasn't just VCRs and cheap microwaves either. The nation had also moved into very capital-intensive industries like ship manufacturing. Today, the nation is the largest shipbuilder in the world, the third largest car manufacturer, and also a center for technology that rivals places like Silicon Valley, Shenzhen, and Tokyo. A lot of this success came from companies that operate in a strangely unique way. South Korean Chaebols are family-run megacorporations that grew to extreme prominence in the late 70s and early 80s. The South Korean government saw how amazing the development of these companies were at facilitating this kind of industry, so they did their best to support it. Large and successful family corporations like Hyundai, Samsung, and LG were basically told to keep doing what they are doing. Don't worry about cash flow or even turning a profit. We got you. Just keep on growing and employing and exporting. This was in many ways effectively a socialist policy. It was just that it was directed exclusively towards corporations. But again, while it was unusual, it worked. With very little limitation on funding, these companies grew rapidly to become the household brand names we know today. The thing with these companies was that they weren't necessarily public companies. In many cases, they were controlled exclusively by a single family, and the management of these enterprises is still dynastic, and they are also pretty monopolistic. If you want to produce cars in Korea, it's done by Hyundai, who also owns Kia. If you want to produce ships, it's done by Hyundai, and if you want to produce consumer electronics, it's done by LG or Samsung. And that is the country's three largest industries, controlled entirely by three companies. And these megacorporations are ultimately responsible for two-thirds of the Korean economy. Even though these industries were great for fueling the growth of Korea during its industrial revolution, no great economy was ever based on artificially competitive monopolistic megacorporations which leaves Korea with a bit of a problem, because these companies are basically mini-governments in and of themselves, and they are also way too big to fail. The problem of companies that are too big to fail is not exclusive to Korea. We have even seen in America that financial institutions exist that are so intertwined with the domestic market that letting them crumble would take down the entire national economy with them. The thing is, 
that Morgan Stanley, while influential, does not have its own city. This is Ulsan's, better known as Hyundai City. Located here is Hyundai's main shipyard, a major car factory, and their head office. This city actually has the highest GDP per capita in the entire nation, but everybody that lives here is either an employee of Hyundai or someone there to service the employees of Hyundai. This is a city of over 1.2 million people, similar in size to Dallas, Texas, which is almost entirely owned by a single corporation. This means a few things. For starters, these institutions have a lot of sway over their representative districts. Hyundai is basically in charge of this city and runs it almost like an independent city-state. And on a national level, it also means that these corporations can continue to lean on the government for support because any hint of any of these institutions going under would cripple the Korean economy. And it also means that they are a major destabilizing force. This is Lee Kun-hee, the chairman of Samsung, the largest corporation in all of South Korea. Now, while this man is still the sitting chairman of this huge corporation, he is also probably dead. He was admitted to Samsung Medical Center, because of course they own their own medical center, in 2014 and has not been seen since. But even still, he is the chairman of the company. Now, is he dead or alive? Who really knows? But everybody is happy to keep up the facade. The South Korean government knows that their inheritance laws would require a mass sell-off of shares in the company if he were actually dead, which would lead to a huge slowdown and ultimately likely the loss of tens of thousands of jobs. The company itself is also happy to keep this image up because it means that they can continue to operate without having to adapt to new leadership and the uncertainty that comes along with it. And even the people of the nation have gone, yep, Okay, let's just say he is alive because my pension probably relies on that fact. So yeah, this is basically modern day South Korea, a highly advanced, technically proficient and supremely well-educated nation that is lorded over by mega corporations run by undead zombie chairman. Pretty badass if you ask me. The success of South Korea in becoming a prosperous nation through its own ingenuity and good policy lies in stark contrast to the story of North Korea, which is a video I suggest you watch after this one if you haven't already. Not only as a shameless plug, but also to grasp the difference between a really, really lucky nation that was managed terribly and a really well-managed nation that was just unlucky. South Korea is by no means perfect and it will seriously need to address the issues associated with its megacorporations if it is going to continue to grow and prosper into the future. And hey, maybe it may very well follow the same kind of path as Japan and slowly plateau out into economic stagnation. But regardless of all of that, the nation has provided a significantly improved quality of life for its citizens, which in turn have become one of the smartest and most driven groups of people on the planet which means that the economy of South Korea is in good hands and it can continue to be the unlucky country that thinks its way out of problems. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed this latest video. Please consider liking and subscribing if you did. As always, another huge thank you to our new patrons over on Patreon. Your support continues to make all of these videos possible, guys. We will be hosting the Q&A session live streamed on the second channel linked in the video description as always. If you want to be involved in that, come on over there to participate directly or you can join our Discord server. Thanks guys, bye.